Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Our program is made up of two 10-minute speakers and a main speaker. Our first 10-minute speaker is Darlene G. from Calistoga. Hello, I'm Darlene, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Darlene. I noticed on the flyer it said they had the words, A Vision for You, and um, the promises of the program. And I'd like to talk about um, um, my experience before I came here. Can everybody hear me? Am I talking into this good? Yeah. <laughs> um, was I just didn't want to live. Um, most of the time of my life, uh, I just felt very um, misunderstood, uh, kind of ridiculed and criticized and uh, very unsure of myself. Actually, I thought I really kind of took up space here on the planet Earth, and, I, you know, I really shouldn't be here. It, I shouldn't um, take up space. So when I came here feeling like that, it was the first time um, I felt, you know, a real acceptance and understanding and forgiveness. And uh, it's it's just... Um, healed me. You know, here I am standing up in front of you. It says, one of the promises says, fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. Well, <clears throat> I've never spoken for all these people, so I guess I have one of those promises. And um, With forgiveness, um, I guess the reason I didn't want to really be around here was uh I just thought I I believed in the God or a power greater than myself before I reached this program but I um a lot of times when I thought about committing suicide uh recently I, I thought about why why did I want to do that and and that's what my drinking was. It was just I was a closet drinker and I just wanted to subtly you know, kill myself. I was too chicken to do, go through the whole process. And I guess because I thought this God, as I understood him, um, really understood me and accepted me just the way I I am. And um, now I just feel like, you know, uh, I'm understood. It's like, the reason I wanted to leave this earth, but now because of the program and all the wonderful people in the program, I, I just feel really like I have a gift that I, I wish the rest of the world could, could have, you know, the, the love and the understanding and the, um, unconditional love. I guess that's what it is. And, and, um, it always just, it just picks me up no matter if I, 
if I'm in a little pit or um and it levels me out like if I get super hyper and you know, I feel like I'm on the ceiling. <laughs> um I just feel real grateful for everything that this program has given me. And last week I went to this um, retreat on prayer and meditation, and I did this fourth and fifth step uh, concerning my father. It's been a real hard thing. I've been in the program over two years, and uh, I've done about, about three inventories, but I guess as you... You grow, you realize, you know, what what else in, in other areas you have to grow in. So I took another one concerning my father and, uh, and then took a fifth. And I tell you, I just felt such peace after that. So I guess if you've taken one inventory and you, you really didn't feel that much, you know, just this was the best one that I've ever experienced and I just feel that I'm healed or on a on a different level that I just have this peace and uh I still don't believe I'm standing up here looking at all of you um we suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves um I really had to turn it over and just admit that I was totally powerless over my life and the people, places, and things in my life. And and if I try to get my happiness and my peace from the people, places, and things in my life, I'm really disappointed uh, because only my God can give me that peace. And so... All of you, just keep coming back, and I guess my ten minutes is up. Thank you. Our second ten-minute speaker is Leo M. from Sacramento. Can I change my mind? must be 5,000 people out here. What? I don't need no mic. Oh. Raise it. How do you raise it? Oh, that's simple, huh? Get on my knees. Oh, that's a friend. I'm an alcoholic. My name's Leo. That's it. I'm going to close the meeting with a moment of silence. I, uh... I forgot all my funny stuff. They asked me to talk, and they told me it'd be ten minutes, and I thought, well, I could stand up here and thank the committee for inviting me, and the committee just left when I got up here. And I could, you know, thank everybody for the hospitality, and I thought I could introduce all my relationships in this in this room, and I thought that'd be about two hours. And then I thought I could tell you what I know about this program, and I thought that'd take about a minute. My sponsor said I had to mention his name four or five times. I wrote it down here somewhere. I'll get to it. I would like to say I'm a member of the Men's White Flight Group. It's a small meeting. 
We meet on Wednesday nights in Carmichael, and almost everybody's invited. I would like to welcome the new people. My time up yet? He's rubbed me. There we go. I like to welcome the new people. You know, I uh, I believe there's a lot of laughing, a lot of kidding goes on around here, but uh, this is life and death. I think most of us in this room. And if you're in this room, if you if you think you got a problem with alcohol, you're in the right place. You know, and I've got some opinions. I think we all do. And I like to say that uh, nobody gets here by mistake. And if you're here, you belong here. You know, and you never have to take another drink again. You know, I think we lose sight of that sometimes. And anyway, I know I do. I, uh, since I've got to command the audience here tonight, we locked the doors while I stood up here too, so you can't leave. Uh, you know, I've been around this program for a period of 24 hours, and it took me a long time. I heard a speaker about, uh, I believe it was last, Fre- uh, last Fresno in February. I think it was last February in Fresno of the year before, I'm not sure. I heard a guy talk about the principles of this program. And I, uh, I've heard that word mentioned, that's right before I mentioned affairs, the 12 step. And I, uh, I didn't know what that, what the principles were. And I listened to that man talk and it really set something off for me and I went into looking and reading and trying to find out what principles were all about. And I come up with, I came up, he came up. <laughs> I found that there's eight principles that I found in this program, and I would like to go into them a little bit. Uh, the the first one in in step one is honesty, and this is all my opinion. And I you know I used to uh, try and copy people and and say what all the big time speakers said and and try and impress everybody. And I found out one time that no matter what I say, half you people ain't gonna like me anyway. You know, so it don't matter no more. I just try and be Leo, and and what I came up with is what I'm I'm stuck with. I would like to give credit to my sponsor, though. Anything I say bad here, he'll take credit for. In the first step, I found honesty. You know, I had to get honest with myself. I thought I did that when I first came into this program, the first time, and I uh, I was one of the ones that chose to go back out and drink again. You know, and I'm also one of the lucky ones that made it back. Because some of us don't make it back. And that's reality. You know, for the new people, that's reality. Some of us go back out and we die out there. Or we live out there insane the rest of our lives. That's my fear. I found out, I found the principle of honesty in the first step. I had, to, I had to get honest to myself. I was powerless over alcohol that my life was unmanageable. I can say today that I got some manageability in my life today. If I do certain things, I get certain results. And I've got a choice whether I want to do them things or not and get them results. In the second step, I found hope. Uh, <laughs> I found out that, you know, I could be restored to sanity. And I, boy, that was easy for me because I know I was one loony when I came to this program. I was crazy. You know, I still am today, but I, I got it controlled, I think, a little bit. In the third step, I found faith. You know, <laughs> I read that step and I found out that, you know, a higher power, and I, I call him God today. When I came in here, I didn't, I didn't like the word higher power or God or nothing. Uh, I've got a God today. I found out that, you know, I can turn my life over to something, and I thought that, you know, 
who could run my life better than me when I got here? And I thought, you know, that's what got me here. Something I found out, it took me a long time. I worked the second and third step for many months. And I found, I know today that I, the third step especially, I was looking for a guide. I was trying to find some sort of a power, and I don't believe that's what that step's all about. You know, in one of our steps later down the road, it talks about accepting the first two steps. We just accept it as a power agreement to myself, you know, and that I can be restored to sanity. And I, I believe for me, I found the, the God of my understanding in the fourth and the ninth step. You know, uh, the fourth, fifth, and sixth step is, uh, gotta look, courage. <laughs> You know, to, to make a list to, to, uh, you know, to, to tell somebody else, the person that I was, you know, to talk to God, you know, to, uh, the sixth step I, the character defects, I, I wanted my character defects removed and after I took a fourth and fifth, my sponsor, whatever his name is, told me to go home and read part of the big book after the fifth step and I did that and about two weeks later I'm driving down the road and I would, obsessed with lust and a few other good character defects and I thought you know I really want them removed I really honest I want to be a better person you know I believe uh, I believe I was put here to to be a better person you know uh, I call him Joe the citizen he pays his bills he goes to work on time he don't take Mondays off you know he goes home he don't cheat on his wife very boring but I want to be that person today. I really do. And I know because of this program I can get that. The seventh step I won't talk about too much because it talks about humility. And I've looked a lot of these words up uh, that we talk about around here. And to be honest, that's one of the words I really don't understand. You know, uh, I think I got it. I read it in the, in the dictionary one time. It said showing awareness of, of one's uh, shortcomings. In the eighth, ninth, and tenth step, I found responsibility. You know, I, I had to be responsible. The list I made in the fourth step was my amends list. So my sponsor pointed out to me. And I had to go back and make them amends. I'm still making them today, you know. And what I'm pointing out, by working this program, I'm starting to get the benefits. You know, I was around here for a long time. And I shucked and jived and, and said what I thought you people wanted me to say. And I was involved, you know. I was at a meeting last night and the guy was talking, the guy was chairing, has been secretary and stuff a lot, and I was thinking, you know, I've, I've been secretaries and stuff around these meetings a lot, and that don't mean I was in this program. I dumped a lot of ashtrays, but I wasn't in this program for a long time. You know, the program to me is in the big book. Uh, in the tenth step, I, I got to be responsible enough to, to, to not hurt anybody, to have to go back and do another eighth and ninth step, I'm trying to do that today. It's hard for me to go back and say I'm sorry, you know, that I was wrong. God, I don't think I've ever been wrong too many times, but when I am, i got to go back and admit it. But I know if I don't, the price I've got to pay. In the eleventh step, I found patience, and I think I found a little faith again. It's more faith. And I was thinking this morning, I got a call from somebody. And we was talking, and, and she's been doing a lot of praying, and I've been doing a lot of praying. One of our fellow members is uh, dealing with some of his past. And she got a call this morning, and this has been going on for about two months, and I know there's quite a few other people that has been praying for this guy. And she got this call that things are going to be okay. 
And I was thinking about that, and I thought, you know, that's where the patients come in. You know, we have to wait, and we know it's in God's hands, and we've got to wait sometimes. And I don't want to wait for nothing. I want everything right now. You know, and the faith was there, you know. We was praying, and, you know, the faith that everything's going to be okay, and we found it this morning, it is. Ain't that right? The last step is charity. You know, i got to give it away to keep it. It took me a long time to to realize that. There's a beautiful lady that uh, she died about six months ago, had a lot of time on this program, and she used to tell me that. You know, and uh, she used to tell me, you got to give it away to keep it, and you got to tell me where you got it. You gotta give credit where credit's due. You know, I gotta hear from you people. Whatever I've got today, I got it from you people. And the credit, I gotta give the credit to you people and the credit to my God. You know, for you new people, when I heard God, I thought, stick it. You know, and I said that many a time, you take your God and I don't want to hear nothing to do with it. But it's a spiritual program. You know, it's not a religious program. You know, and there's a lot of power here. There's three things I wish I could give the newcomers. You know, one is that power. You know, and I, I can't do that. You gotta find that yourself. One is peace. Peace of mind, a peace of, uh, peace with yourself. I can't give that to you. You gotta get that yourself by working this program. But there's one thing that I wish I could give to you newcomers, and I can, and we all can, and we all do, and it might take a while, and there's a beautiful lady sitting here that pointed it out to me a long time ago. And that's love. We can love you until you can love yourself, and then you can love us back. And that's what this program's all about, you know, for me. When I came in here, I was a tough guy. I found out that I had a lot of walls up. I ain't so tough. It's all fear. You know, I don't want to be that tough guy no more. I fall back into that sometimes. I fall back into that, you know, look how tough I am. But I don't want to be that no more. You know, I want to be the person that God put me here for. You know, and I believe because of this program I can do that. And the 12th step, it says, carry the message to others and practice these principles of all of our affairs. And we're back to affairs, and I'll pass. It's uh, Diane G. from Huntington Beach. Hi, I'm Diane. I'm an alcoholic. And I'm glad to be here, no matter how it looks. <laughs> I always get more from a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous than I bring in with me. And when I come to anything for the weekend and I listen to people who are members of Alcoholics Anonymous speak, I get more than I could ever bring to you. And starting with Hank and going through all the 10-minute speakers, the four-and-a-half-month-old Mike this morning, and Rosie, and the two 10-minute speakers we just had, is the same thing. I will, if I leave now, I will leave with much more than I brought to you today. I um, <clears throat> wanted to thank Mike for Leo. He forgot, and... I didn't want Mike to get upset and leave or anything, so I would just like to thank him, whoever he is. He's Leo's sponsor, and he was responsible. 
But it's principles before personalities, and Leo had to do the principles first. When I was born, quite a few years ago, in Lansing, Michigan, I kept trying to think after I got sober what would be significant about my birth or the place I was born. And there was nothing. There was absolutely nothing significant about being born in Lansing, Michigan. It wasn't a small town. I didn't pick cotton. There was nothing exciting about it. But the one thing that was significant to me, and it was true through my whole life until I came to you in Alcoholics Anonymous, was in my secret heart I knew that my parents were not really my parents. I knew that they had adopted me. Now, they told me they didn't. And they said I was their natural child, but I knew. I knew that that's why I felt like I didn't belong there. And I knew that that's why I was always awkward and I never did the right thing at the right time. And everyone always looked at me funny. It was because I wasn't really theirs. And then when I got in junior high school, I would tell myself that they've got me in the wrong classes. If it wasn't, if I were in the classes that were suited to me, I would not feel like this. When I got into high school, <laughs> they said, now, Diane, we want you to decide what you're going to be for the rest of your life. We want you to pick a vocation. Now, what they say to normal people is we want you to pick a vocation. What they said to me was, you have to decide now what you're going to be when you grow up. This is a lifetime occupation, and you will never get another choice. So you better do it right. And it became very important to me to pick the right occupation. And I want—I just wanted to thank Richard for this corsage before I forget to thank him. Because I forget periodically. I get self-obsessed here. And I never had a corsage my whole life going through school. I was one of those kind of drunks that um, missed everything because drinking was primarily important in my life. And I didn't go to those proms. When I was in high school, it was because I didn't want to. But as I got older, it was because I was terrified. I was terrified to be around people that were doing something I knew I couldn't do. So when I, when I got up here today and he brought this thing, I just, I mean, it makes me feel special. That's something that we have to offer each other in Alcoholics Anonymous. As long as we're willing to practice these principles, we're special to each other because we're what we've got. And I got into high school, and I decided what I wanted to be more than anything was a cheerleader. You laugh. That was my lifetime occupation. I meant it. I was serious about that. I, I saw those girls out there, and I saw the attention that they got. When the men watched the football games, I know who they watch. They watched the Dallas Cowgirls, and I wanted to be a cheerleader. And... God knows I wanted to be a good one, and I had difficulties walking, and I ran into things a lot, and I used to trip periodically, and I'm just not the most coordinated person you'll ever meet, and I'd like to say AA brought back my coordination, but it just helped me accept that I don't have any, because <laughs> I still don't, <laughs> but at that time, it was terribly important to me that I not appear foolish. It was essential 
that you not laugh at me, that you don't make me feel inadequate because I already felt inadequate. And so in my mind, which is where I lived most of my life before I came to AA, in my mind I figured that what would happen to me is I would get out there on the field with my pom-poms, because I wanted to shake my pom-poms and kick my feet like those other people. I would get out there and I would start shaking and I would fall. Being uncoordinated, I would fall. I would humiliate myself in front of the whole high school because I knew they would all be there and what would, I would probably have to commit suicide. So I decided then that I would not become a cheerleader <laughs> because I knew that I wouldn't make a good one. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever done that, but I lived most of my life that way, which makes you very inactive because you don't want to risk you know, you don't want to get out there and be a fool or do something stupid or say the wrong thing so you don't talk much and you don't move much. You just kind of sit still so no one knows how you feel. And I became a hoodlum instead because there was not, there was no coordination involved in being a hoodlum actually. But the thing that was lacking is that basically I am chicken shit. I do not do well in the courage department. I have never been brave, and people terrified me. And a lot of the things that we were doing as hoodlums were scary. I mean, we were taking things from people, and they were there. And I got nervous. I mean, and then the police would get you. And in order to get the courage that you need to do these things, they invented alcohol. Now, I know that that's why they invented it, because I want to tell you, not only did my hair shine, my eyes and teeth shined, but I got courage. I mean, I was brave. I could tell anybody what to do or where to go. I, I could have told Rosie. I wouldn't tell him today, but I could have told him then. I was big, and I was mean, and I was so scared. Whenever I wasn't drinking, I was scared. And we used to go and steal things, steal people's televisions and stuff like that. And when I got sober, I wasn't, well, not when I got sober, I never worried about amends. But after I started working the steps, I was worried about how I was going to pay back all those things because half of the stuff I took, I can't remember. And they have ways. If you worry about how you're going to make amends to people, there are ways to do that. My first sponsor that I ever had told me what you do is when someone needs something, you give it to them. And you don't worry about the people that you can't contact again. But at that time, I was just into what I could get. And we used to go to these great parties. And I had extreme difficulty lasting through a whole party. Because I felt that if a couple of drinks made me feel good, 15 or 20 were going to make me real good. And everyone would know how cool I was. I would be irresistible. And usually I became totally obnoxious and nobody wanted to be around me. Several times they tried to drown me and I always got arrested. And I don't know why I thought every single time that this time I'm going to be wonderful. This time I'm going to be cool. This time if I just don't put salt on my margaritas, if I just drink the tequila straight, if I just don't drink in those lousy bars anymore where the bikers are, this time I'm not going to get arrested. This time nobody's going to beat me up. This time it'll be different. 
didn't work out like that. I went through high school, and I went to these parties, and I kept passing out, and somebody in school turned me on to some little white pills. Yeah, they turned you on too, huh? Those were great pills if you passed out early because they help you last through the whole party. And sometimes I would last for days and days after the party, and they would give me these little red pills. And so I could kind of calm down and go to sleep, and they could get rid of me. So I became chemically balanced for a few years. And I took just about anything that I could, anything that they gave me. I became terribly psychedelic for a while, and always I drank. Did a little social heroin periodically, and I was just wonderful. And the thing I understand about problems with drugs, I know that a lot of young people come into AA today and, and they have terrible drinking problems, but they, they have drug problems too, and they look around and they say, I'm not like you. And the reason I know that is because that's what I did. I looked around and I said, I'm not like you. I have serious difficulties. I was a dope fiend. I drank, but I had drug problems too. And you want to know something? Since I've gotten involved in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I have practiced these principles in all my affairs, and I have not drank. I don't even think about doing that other stuff. Putting needles in my arm and taking funny little pills doesn't even occur to me because my lifestyle is not conducive to fading out. My lifestyle is conducive to sober living. And so I don't drink today, and I'm an alcoholic. And I take care of my primary purpose and all of the other insignificant areas of my life shape up. But it wasn't always like that for me. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous the first time when I was 18. I'd been in and out of jail, in and out of juvenile hall. They took me to this reform school where they had a six-month program, and I was going to show them they couldn't do it to me, so they kept me a year. And that was my attitude. And I always paid more than anybody else because I knew they couldn't do this to me. When I was 18 years old, I came to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and there was an old white-haired guy there. He still speaks once in a while. His name's Chuck. And his son, <laughs> he's a nice old guy. He lives in my neighborhood. And his son was a doctor, Dr. Kildare. And I love Dr. Kildare. And I was 18, and reality has never been one of my top priorities. It has never been one of my major accomplishments. I was sober many years before reality became the basis for my lifestyle. At that time, I, I wanted Chuck's autograph. I mean, this was Dr. Kildare's father, and um, they wouldn't let me go get it. These people that had took me there, they didn't want me to humiliate them. And um, Chuck said he'd give it to me today if I want. I don't want it. Only you guys would know who he is anyway. So I left that meeting, and I had looked around before I left, and I realized that I didn't belong there. And you know how keen you are when you're new, and you see with the eyes of a new person, and you look around, and no one looks like you. They're all old. When I was, when I was 18 years old, I'm 34 now. When I was 18, those people were 30. I'm telling you, they were the youngest person there was 30 years old, and most of those folks were 50. And I figured that they had gathered all the alcoholics in one room, stuck them together, and were going to wait for them to pass on, cause no more trouble, because they had caused their share. And you just can't give up the ghost when you're 18. 
I mean, if I figured if I was 30 or something like that, I'd probably come around. But 18 years old, I knew there must be something else I could do. And there was. There was. I got married. I got married. It was a good idea at the time. It was the best I had to offer. And I got married, and I was going to live happily ever after, have little babies. Now, they never told me that you had to like them or that you had to get to know them or anything like that. They just say in these books, if you get married, you live happily ever after. Have little kids. Life is good. But for me, life was never good. And no matter what I did, I wasn't adequate. And no matter who was in my life, they became the problem. And it never took very long. And I married this guy, and it took me two years to find him, and he finally thought it was his idea. We got married, lived happily ever after for six months, and I wanted him out. I knew that he was the reason I was like this. Now, before he was the reason I was like this, it was my mother's fault. And before her, it was her mother's fault. And the instructors I had in school never did understand me. And the matrons in the reform school in the jail never did understand me. And they didn't know that I was sensitive. They don't, you know how it, those people never understand that about us? That we hurt deeply. We feel everything. And we're sensitive people. And they treat us just like everyone else. And I never, <laughs> I never understood that. I got out of that marriage as gracefully as I could. I snuck out in the night. That's how I did everything. I've never been brave. And I snuck out in the night to go on vacation for a weekend, and I never went back. And um, he filed bankruptcy and went through all of those things on his own because I never went back. I went to an area in Orange County called Tustin. And I lived in a commune, and I went to college to become a psychiatrist. You, ha you would have had to have been there to understand <laughs> why it seemed like I could do that. Because I had had such a rough life, you know, and I was so terribly sensitive, I figured with just a slight amount of education, I would be able to help you people. Not necessarily alcoholics, but suffering people. And see, that's something I've always wanted to do, is help people that suffered. It's just that it was always so inconvenient to help them because they always call you at dinner or they call you early in the morning. And if you're a psychiatrist, then you can pick when they come. So I decided that I would become a psychiatrist. And I went to, Nor um, to um, college to become a psychiatrist, and I got a job in a bar which is a marvelous place for a drunk to have a job. Nobody pays any attention to you. And I ended up in Norwalk Metropolitan State Hospital for the insane people, nuts, drunks, drug addicts. That's what they have there. And I couldn't understand how that could happen. Because one of the things that has always occurred to me is that you guys were um, wrong in calling people nuts. Crazy, insane. It, it wasn't right of you when you didn't understand that some of us were educated. And some of us were not nuts. A little emotionally disturbed, off the wall periodically, but we were not nuts. And it always was a point of contention for me. And when I came back to Alcoholics Anonymous, one more point had been removed. Because it's really hard to convince yourself you are not in serious trouble when you're in Norwalk. 
I mean, there are real crazy people there. There are people that wear mops on their heads and put their hands in their shirt. I mean, you know, classic people. And so I figured I probably did have a slight problem. Got out of, of Norwalk and I came back to Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I want, I want to tell you that I'm going to try to be as honest with you as I can because it's terribly important to me that you know what it's really been like for me here in Alcoholics Anonymous. I came in and I didn't want to stay sober. I didn't come here to get what you had. I came here to get loose of what I had. And it never occurred to me that you could be right. It never occurred to me that you knew what you were talking about. You had to be wrong. No, I never trusted anyone, and I knew that you couldn't possibly be right. But I listened. And I went to my first meeting on a Thursday night in Westminster. And it was a discussion meeting, and I couldn't tell you one thing that they said. Not one thing. But I can tell you something that happened after the meeting. I was sitting there all during the meeting, and terror in me comes out differently than in some people, although like a lot of people that I know, quite like my first sponsor. And it came out in me in hostility. The more scared I got, the more mean I got. And the more that meeting went on, the more scared I got. And I was getting madder and madder because I knew that I would never be able to do what you did. I would never be able to have what you had. I'd already been here before. I didn't quit drinking, but I didn't know that was part of the deal. I just thought you came, God struck you sober. If he didn't like you, you never got struck, and you just went around a bad example for the rest of your life. And I didn't want to do that. And so I was getting scared. And this little guy came up to me after the meeting, and he said, How are you, honey? How'd you like our meeting? You know how AA people are. They're always optimistic. And I said, Um... I think you're all assholes. I don't see how you can stand yourself, and I am never coming back. (laughs) I know people that are like that today. I have not found it necessary to leave Alcoholics Anonymous since that day. April the 4th, I'll be here nine years. And I never came to stay nine years. I came here because I couldn't kill myself. I tried. Because my folks wouldn't take me home. My sister kicked me out. My rent was due. There was nothing else I could do. I came back to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I didn't do anything you said because I didn't believe you were right. I did everything you said not to do. And it's quite interesting. If any of the rest of you had tried to be sober in Alcoholics Anonymous and maintain your rights and maintain your defects, and continue a lifestyle of dishonesty and deceit, you know how interesting it can be in Alcoholics Anonymous. I came in, and the first thing I heard that you were saying was, get a sponsor. Get a sponsor. So I went, and I asked this lady to be my sponsor. She appealed to me, and she went home immediately and called her psychiatrist and asked if it was okay to sponsor me. And that woman will be your speaker tomorrow morning. We trudged the road of destiny for a year in Alcoholics Anonymous, and then she wanted me to get down to the business of the steps and stuff like that, and and she wanted me to change and do things differently. And when you're faced with a situation like that and you're me, you change sponsors. I changed sponsors. 
the next sponsor went along for a while, and then she wanted me to do the same thing. Sponsors are like that. And so what I did for a while is sponsor myself, because I was the only one I could trust. And I knew I wasn't going to have me do all that stuff. The other thing that I heard when I was here for a while was don't get emotionally involved for the first year. Do you know how long 30 days is when you're new? 30 days is like a lifetime. And you know that either you're going to die before the year is up, or they're going to take all the good stuff, and you're going to be there by yourself anyway, and they're going to be laughing at you. And you remember how I felt about being a fool. So I went right out and got emotionally involved immediately. And it didn't work out, but it never stopped me. Things like that didn't stop me. You know how it is when you get a good idea and you know that this is the way that it's going to work for you. Now, the rest of you guys, I realized, had to go to meetings and work the steps. I heard the fifth chapter so differently. I don't know if newcomers have different ears or what it is, but when I was new in Alcoholics Anonymous, the way they read that fifth chapter was, those people with grave emotional and mental disorders work the steps. The rest of you don't have to. And since I had gotten out of Norwalk just quite recently, I realized that I wasn't like you, so I was going to have to find something else to occupy my time. And I knew that if you went to meetings every single night like they asked you to, your social life was going to go down the tubes. Now, nobody was talking to me much at that point in my life, but I figured if I stayed sober for a while, I would have a heavy social life, and I would have the schedule to meet, and I just I couldn't go to that many meetings, and I didn't. I go to a lot more meetings now than I did when I was new. But I did have a sponsor, and I went out to find him because I knew that to get married and live happily ever after, sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, would be the answer for me. When you don't have steps, you need something else. There was no higher power in my life. It was years before I became suspicious that there was a God. And I became suspicious way before I believed. And I went out to meetings, and I went to search for him. And that, I mean, that is really a kick. I agree with Joyce. It is a lot of fun. It wasn't that expensive for me because I didn't have high qualifications. I, <laughs> I didn't care what he looked like. I just wanted to get married and live happily ever after. So I went to these meetings, and I would sit way in the back of the room so I could check out everybody and see if anything was available. And if there was nothing available, I would leave and go on to another meeting. We have 500 meetings in Orange County. And if you don't find what you want at one, you can go on and on. And so I went on and on. And I missed a lot of the fifth chapter and a lot of the 12 traditions. And I found him. I found him in an alcathon. I don't know if you have those up here, but they're AA meetings that last 24 hours. And at 1 o'clock in the morning... When both my eyes were crossed, they met his. <laughs> and we, I mean, it was made in heaven. We knew that this was it. Love at first sight. And I knew love. You know how I knew? Lightning and thunder, and your heart is beating so fast you can hardly contain it in your skin. And you just feel warm. Real warm. And I went over and sat down by him, and we started talking. And we had so much in common, this guy and I. And I know, you know, if you listen long enough in AA, you can hear anything you want to hear. And I heard about God's will here. I know God's will is when you want something, 
It's God's will. And I looked at that man, and I knew he was God's will for me. So I, after we discovered the things we had in common, we were both guitar players, and we both sang, and we were terribly ill. It was like two half people coming together and making a whole person. We went to explain to his wife and his kids what had happened. And... uh <laughs> She wasn't quite that excited about it. And see, you just, when you come into Alcoholics Anonymous like I, you have no values. You have no morals. You have no principles. Everything I have today and everything I am, I've gotten from you. At that point, I just thought if you wanted it, you took it. And she gave us the kids. I mean, she was just wonderful. And I was 26 years old, and I, or 27, and I never had any kids. And I was slightly emotionally retarded myself, and it was just wonderful. Annie and I used to take the littlest kids up to a meeting in Garden Grove and, and leave them out coloring and go scream about them in the meeting and talk about what it was like to have kids. And I... I had a real hard time, and it got harder and harder because God's will would take off and go fishing, and there I was with these little kids, and they were nice as kids go, but they weren't my kids, and I didn't have any money to feed these little kids, and God's will is fishing, and I'm pissed. Now, I hadn't worked any steps, and I'd gotten rid of both of my sponsors by that time, but I could tell he was having some serious problems, and so I got me another sponsor. And I got this sponsor to help straighten him out. Because you know how it is when someone's in your life and they're worse than you. They are the problem. And you don't need any help. You just need to fix them and life will be good again. So I got this sponsor and and I asked Janice if she would, you know, help me. Now, I didn't say help me with what, but I just said help me and she was willing to do that. And it's really funny because she's one of these crazy people who believe in Alcoholics Anonymous. She believes in the commitment. She believes in the big book. She worked all the steps. She had the same sponsor from the day she got here. I mean, she was somebody that I would have never spoken to when I was in my illness in Alcoholics Anonymous. Up until this point, when I was about three years sober, I had worked no steps, and I had become a circuit speaker when I was three months sober. I didn't tell the truth. I just went and spoke. That's why it's so important to me today that I don't lie to you and that I tell you what it's really like for me because I would go and listen to speakers talk and if they said something good, that's who I was the next time I talked. I just throw little things in. No one ever knew. I was telling you how wonderful it was to be sober and how good God was to me and these three little children, I loved them. They drove me crazy and I had, I had dirty dishes and my house was a mess and life at home was not like the things that I told you from the podiums in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I didn't know how to tell you the truth, and the gap was getting so wide that I was going to have to go away, that there was no way I was going to be able to stay here one more day and lie to you. I was made the treasurer of my home group, and those people loved me in Huntington Beach. They loved me. They know my trash, and they love me. I stole their money. I was a trusted servant. And I stole their money. And I always suggest that people who are electing trusted servants try to check and see if they work the steps. Because some of us come in here as thieves, and until we make the changes, we have a tendency to stay like that. And I took a lot of money. And finally, when I was sober a little over three and a half years, God's will split. 
and he went to practice his principles in another affair, and I was by myself. It's easy for you to say. I didn't think it was that funny. And <laughs> I was left by myself. And what looked very good to me at that point was suicide. Drinking looked like it was going to take a long time. And I decided that what I wanted to do was die. And my sponsor called me that night and she said, you know, Diane, you're a liar, a cheat, and a thief. Just like you think you are. But if you're willing to start there and tell the people who you really are and what you really do, then you can stay sober in Alcoholics Anonymous just like everyone else. And that happened for me. I always tell myself that this is not going to happen to me when I speak from the podiums in Alcoholics Anonymous. But if you knew about me what I know about me, and you understood that it is impossible for me to be sober today without God and you, then you would understand why I periodically um, cry. <laughs> periodically, I get so grateful that I don't think I'm going to make it. And that little mic today touched my heart. And when I got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, no one touched my heart. I had no idea that it was possible to feel the feelings I've been allowed to experience sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. And all I do is show up. I started showing up on a daily basis. I went to more commitment meetings than I have ever been to in my life. And I followed direction. I did what Janice told me to do. And I said, I'm willing. She said, Diane, I want you to quit speaking from the podiums in Alcoholics Anonymous until you can go there and tell them the truth. I want you to quit speaking as long as it's more important to you that they like you than it is that you give them what you've got to offer and nothing more, that you be enough as you are. So I quit for two years. I didn't speak from a podium in Alcoholics Anonymous for two years because I didn't trust myself. And I cared too much about how you felt. And I want to tell you today, it's not that I don't care how you feel. No one likes to be rejected or disliked. It's not my thing. But it's more important to me that I be able to go home with me and sleep tonight than it is that you approve of what I say. So i got to tell you what it's really been like for me. And in the meantime, while I was not speaking from the podium and I was going to these commitment meetings and I took a sabbatical from men for a while, I had a lot of spare time. So she suggested that I get involved in something that would be useful to Alcoholics Anonymous. And so I became involved in general service. Not willingly. Because in my area, in Huntington Beach, they hate general service. Now I know that will be hard for you to believe. But when I used to get up there, I would go to those meetings that I never wanted to go to. And I would sit there and listen to stuff I never wanted to listen to. And I would go back to report... And they booed me. I mean, they hissed from the back of the room. But I made them listen anyway. Because I figured if I was stuck with it, they were stuck with it. And I gave my report every month. Then they elected me district committeeman. And I like that. You get a little power. You know what it's like? I know why they rotate people in Alcoholics Anonymous, because there must be a couple more like me. I got in there, and I got this feeling... I never wanted to do what they suggested. I never sent out invitations or got a place to meet until nobody showed up to one of my meetings. But I felt like I had such power 
I could tell them when to start and when to stop. And by the time I had been district committeeman for two years, I wanted to do it forever. I mean, I like that feeling, and I got a lot of juice in the assembly meetings, and they just thought I was wonderful. And so I got rotated out of that office, and they made me secretary. Now, I didn't want to be secretary. I had told God before the elections what I was willing to do. I always tell God what I'm willing to do, and he always laughs. And I got elected secretary, and that's the only thing I told him I didn't want to do. I said, God, I don't want to be secretary. It's a lot like manual labor, and I like to be social when I'm at these things, and I like to talk to people. This was a few years ago. I enjoy being part of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I don't listen a lot. And uh, when you're secretary, you have to listen. And it's really funny what happened for me while I was secretary those two years. I learned how to listen because you have to take the minutes. And now I sit in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, and you guys say the darndest things. I hear what goes on in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I learned that by being secretary. And I would have missed it if I would have refused. God knows more about what I need than I'll ever know. I stayed in general service as secretary, and I wrote really fun minutes. I mean, if I do say so myself, I had fun. I told jokes in them. I, mean, I just had a great time, and I got a lot of juice for being the secretary, and I wanted to stay secretary forever. You know how we don't like to change. And they had elections last year, and they elected me delegate. And I became immediately inadequate. I was really jacked up at the elections, and I went home, and I was by myself for an hour and 45 minutes, and then my heart started beating real fast, like, you know, when you're going to hyperventilate and die. And I knew I had started thinking which is something Chuck says never, ever to do. Don't think. But I, I do that once in a while, and I had started thinking about what it was going to be like when I went to New York and how I was not going to be able to say anything very intelligent because most of those people had already been there before, and I had never been to New York, and there were a lot of people. I, and you know how you do that to yourself? Now you have to commit suicide, right? And I decided that I could not be delegate that I, it was overwhelming, I would never be able to do it. So I called my sponsor in general service, and I said, I can't do this. I can't be delegate. I don't, I'm not adequate. And she said, well, Diane, I think you're forgetting something. It's October. You're not delegate. You're secretary. You don't become delegate till January. All you got to do is take the minutes. And, you know, I could do that. I could take the minutes. I was good at taking the minutes. And so I didn't panic. And before I knew it, it was January. And I've been the delegate for, God, almost two months now. And nobody's quit. And we still have an area. <laughs> and it's incredible to me. And I get excited and still periodically overwhelmed. And then I have this terrific beanbag chair that's reserved for five minutes of self-pity whenever I feel willing to indulge. So all I give myself anymore is five minutes because the rest of it's just repetition. But... I had started thinking again, and I realized that I was only 34, and I became delegate without ever getting to be alternate. And I was going to go to New York twice, and then I was all done. And then after the last conference, I was a lame duck delegate. That's what they call them. hate that, but that's what they call them. And I would be no good anymore. And I started feeling like a premature grandmother and that they had taken something away from me. 
And why I'm telling you this is because this all happened uh, last month. And I periodically get the feeling, because of the way things are in my life and the job I have and the people I know, that I am recovering. And what's going to happen when I get recovered and I don't need you anymore? What's going to happen when I, when I have all this time because I don't have to worry about mental illness or being crazy or flipping out? Or I don't need to go to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. And I want to tell you something that will never happen for me. That will never happen for me. Because my sponsor is the kind of sponsor that believes that you don't go to Alcoholics Anonymous to get what you need. The reason that you continue going to Alcoholics Anonymous is to give what you have. Because you have given me more than I will ever need. There is, I have been in the same home group for nine years. And I went to them after I stole all their money and I told them, I stole your money and I want to pay you back. And they said, fine. They didn't kick me out. Nobody makes fun of me. They've never elected me treasurer again and I don't know if they ever will. But they let me greet at the door and they don't make me feel that I don't belong there. And they understand. I was sober for quite a while, and I had worked all of the steps, and I had been um, kind of looking around for somebody that I could give this thing back to because they kept telling me, if you do not give it back, you won't be able to keep it. And I wanted to keep it. By that time, I had gotten a little taste of what you folks have going here, and I wanted more. And so I got a 12-step call at the central office, and it was a drunk lady, and she was in her pajamas, and she had her tennis shoes on, and she said, you know, I can't decide if I want to run or go to bed. And I understood. I understood that. And I went and I got her. I said, don't do anything. And I picked her up, and I took her to a meeting in Alcoholics Anonymous. And she had a bottle of vodka with her in case she decided she didn't want what we had. And she didn't stay, but I stayed sober. Three weeks later, she called me and asked me to be her sponsor. She'd gotten sober somewhere else, and I gave her what I had, and she stayed sober. And I made a lot of mistakes, because they don't send you to sponsor school here. They don't tell you how to do these things. They suggest you take somebody with you, but you know how good I am at suggestions. And I went by myself. She stayed sober, and she's sober now almost three years, but she decided that she didn't need Alcoholics Anonymous, and she's out working now. Work has become terribly important to her. And I had another friend in Alcoholics Anonymous that Annie knows, my friend Sandy, and we were best friends in Alcoholics Anonymous. And we got terribly close, and I shared things with her I couldn't share with my sponsor because there's still a certain amount of authority with your sponsor, and you kind of bounce them off somebody else. And then you always have to have somebody you can talk about your sponsor to. Know what I mean? When they get real bad, and life is the pits, and they don't understand, and they don't give you a break, and they expect you to be just like everyone else. I had Sandy. And Sandy decided a couple years ago that she didn't need Alcoholics Anonymous, and she joined this crazy religion and, and went away. And that hurt me. I got mad. If that ever happens to you in Alcoholics Anonymous, it was the first time I ever realized I had feelings. It was the first time I ever realized that you had made a change in me that I could never make. 
I wanted to care like you. I wanted to love like you. I wanted to be able to do what you did for each other. I didn't feel it. Those people would call me in the middle of the night, and I would get mad. I would talk to them, but I would get mad. And I did that for a year before my sponsor said, God never said you had to smile. Just answer the phone. He never said that you had to enjoy having people throw up on your shoes. You just take them to the meetings. And I didn't ever believe that I would be able to feel the things that I'm able to feel today. A few other girls came into my life, and when Susie went out, I wasn't going to sponsor anyone else anymore. I figured, that's it. Man, these people do not appreciate you. You give them the best years of your life. You know what I mean? Oh, God. I really will never get well. And I should be very grateful for that. But these other these other women have come into my life, and they seem to want what I have. And, you know, some of them even listen. Some of them even do the things that I want them to do without even asking me why. Now, those are people I don't understand, but, God, it makes your life easy. And I have this one girl that I sponsor in particular that has touched my heart. She is very, very special girl. And she came into Alcoholics Anonymous and never wanted to tell anyone. She came, and she was terrified that someone was going to find out. Now, she knew that a few people had seen her passed out in parking lots and that she threw up on her father and did a few, you know, things like that. But she never wanted them to know she had sunk so low as to come to Alcoholics Anonymous. And last year, she flew home to Texas to tell her father about her membership in AA. She goes around and shares in meetings in Alcoholics Anonymous about the love that we have here and the things that she's found and how it's changed her life. And see, that's what I do in AA. That's all I do. I show up and I tell you what they told me. And I give you the time that they gave to me. And it makes my life good. It makes my life good. And I don't do anything. I had a friend. I listened to uh, Leo talk about a beautiful woman that died six months ago, and I had a dear friend in Alcoholics Anonymous who died not too long ago on Christmas Day, and he was special. He was the kind of man that had seven panels out in the institutional committee, and he went every week on at least two. And he went out there and he told those people what it was like to be sober. He came out of the weeds in Costa Mesa, and he couldn't stay sober. And when he got sober, it got important to him to have teeth. So we went and got some new teeth made, and he got some suits, and he looked good. And he shared the life that's possible for us in Alcoholics Anonymous with those inmates, and he got a lot of them out. And he died on Christmas Day, and I was sad. And I cried, and I was upset with God, and I didn't understand why he couldn't take a few of the people I didn't like. Why do you have to take Jack? I could have told him a few people. And today, it's funny because I was just thinking a few days ago that the thing that's so special about people in my life like Jack is that whenever I think about him and I think about the things that he's done for me in Alcoholics Anonymous, I smile. Jack made my life better because he was part of my life. And Alcoholics Anonymous has made my life better because you've allowed me to be part of your life. I was sober quite a while before I could ever talk about God from podiums. I was terrified that you would think I was a member of the God Squad or that I was a preacher or that I was trying to tell you about something that I, I really didn't know about. And I really was a little afraid of God. And I was pretty certain 
that he was kind of pissed at me too and that he was going to maybe get me. And I want to tell you that I realized today that if it was not for the grace of God, and I really enjoyed what Hank said last night. I came into Alcoholics Anonymous and I found God. I didn't come in and find God immediately, but through the steps and the meetings and all of the silly things that they ask you to do that seem totally unrelated to life, I found a life that I could never have asked for. And they talk about a vision for you. And I read that. That's my favorite chapter in the whole book, A Vision for You. And you, if you're new today, you have no idea. When I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, the vision I had for me was a man living happily ever after, a Mercedes becoming rich and famous and living into the manner to which I would like to be accustomed if I wasn't already accustomed. And today... My life is based on spiritual principles. And I never would have asked for that. I never would have asked for the feelings I have for you today. I would have never asked to care, to have values in my life. Spiritual principles were not what I wanted. I wanted money. I identified with Rosie. I wanted things. I wanted people to notice me. And that's not necessary in my life today. It's not that all ambition goes away. It's just that when you live your life by spiritual principles, you enjoy a lot more what's been put into your life. I will never, if I live to be probably 105, and I got up daily, and I gave back to you on a daily basis, and I did whatever you wanted, I would never, ever be able to give you back what you've given me because I can't do this. My best efforts get me drunk because it occurs to me that it's very stupid not to drink when you're in a bar, and I drink. It occurs to me that I don't fit in, I don't belong, you really don't care about me, and I drink. I don't know how to stay sober. I don't know how to live life on life's terms. You've taught me everything. And I just want to thank you for letting me give a little bit of it back. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.